Would you turn to Habakkuk, if you can find that? Uh, I'm guessing if you're new to the Bible, that's going to be even more difficult. But if you don't have a Bible, I've got good news for you. Or if you can't find it in your Bible, it's found in your bulletin. Uh, and I'm going to be reading our passage as well, and it'll be up on the slides. But Habakkuk, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, I'm going to read to us right now. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among you, the nations, and see, the Lord answers. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreadful, dreaded, and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen Press proudly on. Their horsemen come forth from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. I think we all agree that presidential elections can get kind of weird, right? They amplify our emotions. Um, fear and anger are among those, for honest. And that's true in a normal election. I mean, as, since I've been an adult, I've seen it in every election that I've, that I've read about, participated in. Um, but this, this year is a little different. And what would normally be amplified is now amplified to 11, if you will. To many, it feels like our world is falling apart. And to Habakkuk, if you got the tone of the, of the minor prophet, what he's saying here, his world, it feels like, is falling apart to him, and in actuality, it is. Eight years from now, the southern tribes of Israel are swept away, just as the Lord predicts and prophesies through the prophet. His world doesn't just feel like it's falling apart. Israel is literally falling apart. Now, the book of Habakkuk is an oracle, meaning burden. This burden, this vision has been placed on the prophet, Habakkuk. And he is seeing and has this vision, but it's, what he's envisioning is this debate that he's feeling and is going on between he and God. There's a complaint, verses 1 through 4, that we just read, and then God's response in verses 5 through 11. So the prophet complains, and then the Lord responds. At this time, Israel was a divided kingdom, and Judah, the southern tribe, had been more faithful than the north in many respects, 
under the reign of, of kings like Josiah. But now Judah, the southern tribes, are being ruled by Josiah's son and had fallen into great sin and compromise. Horrible. And Habakkuk was a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah and was greatly disturbed by all the stuff that he's seeing in his land, the iniquity, the sin, the injustice. He hoped for better days when the Lord would bring justice, and he complains to the Lord about it. He, his concern increases, though, when he learns that the Lord has a plan, but did you read it? And we're going to talk in great detail about this this morning. God's answer to his complaint is not at all what he wants to hear because God is going to raise up Israel's enemies to judge them. By the end of the book, though, Habakkuk rests in God's sovereignty. He's complaining, and I, and I want you to see implicit in this is that there is a way to complain in faith, and Habakkuk does. <laughs> Have you read the Psalms? That much of the Psalms are God's people crying out to the Lord in frustration and confusion, and that's what we find in verses 1 through 4 of Habakkuk. By the end of the book, though, Habakkuk is resting in God's sovereignty and the faith that the Lord is just and the Lord is good. He says in chapter 2 that the righteous man will live by his faith. That the righteous man will live by his faith. And the prophet will wait and trust in God. Habakkuk's faith serves as an example to us, friends. Listen, we need this book. No matter what your political perspective this morning, we need this book who, like the prophet, we are called to trust in a sovereign king in the midst of what feels like chaos to us. As we feel like our world is falling apart, the question is, will we live by our faith? The righteous will live by faith. Or will we live by fear? Will we live in light of the fact that our God is God and our God is good, or will be reigned and ruled by our emotions during this time of year, but ongoing as well? Can we believe that God is good in the midst of it? The message of Habakkuk is that, ultimately, that God, listen, and this is not an easy message. The Bible's message for us rarely is easy, is it? I mean, the, the message is that God is interested first in restoring his people. So we're not pointing the finger at other people. His own people, Israel. And the, what you notice in the minor prophets is this, that not all of Israel is necessarily true Israel, that the righteous live by what? The righteous live by what? Faith. And so what you see within Israel often to the minor prophets is a remaining remnant that there are people who are among political Israel and then there are those who actually have faith. And God's covenant promises is through that people. The righteous live by faith and God is, is restoring a people to himself who by faith love him, live for him, seek justice, seek the good and trust him. Now, that's God's priority, but that's not the priority we want. We want God to give us what we want, and our main point from Habakkuk this morning is this, and it's kind of the ongoing theme of this series in a way is this. God's priority is not our peace, our prosperity, and our political power, but the purity of our love to him and our neighbor. None of us want to hear that today. 
This is not going to sell politically. This is not going to sell to where our nation stands today. But this, friends, if you follow Jesus, I'm going to be bold enough to say this is true. As you read the, listen, the United States has been blessed. We've seen God bless America. It has been blessed by God. God has been gracious to this nation. But if you notice, we don't have a covenant relation. The United States doesn't have a covenant with God like Israel. Do we agree? We're not going to get into debate whether America is a Christian nation or not. But listen, Israel, though, had a covenant relationship with God where he established it by calling one man to himself. And in spite of that fact, you don't see God's priority as being their peace, prosperity, and their power. Instead, his priority for them is that they would love him, they would be faithful to him, that they would serve him, and that they would love their neighbor as themselves. This is a summation of the, the law in Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Jesus brings that home. We want God to be committed to giving us what we want, he isn't committed to that. And I don't know if you've noticed, but that's true in just your regular life, let alone politics and nations and nation states and so forth. God is far more committed, and again, this doesn't sell books by the millions, but this is what the Bible teaches. God is not committed to my happiness, ultimately, or yours. He is committed to your holiness, which is a much more difficult thing. And what the, the reality is this, that if you actually want true happiness and joy, well, that's where it is found. Church, am I right? I mean, that's where, that is where true happiness is found, is in the midst of knowing God, loving God, serving your God, because that is what holiness is, right? So ultimately, God is committed to our happiness, but it's not the way that we think. It's through, our, it's through coming to know him more deeply and more profoundly. So this morning, God's priority is not our peace, prosperity, and political power. It's not true today, and it's never been true. God is calling a people to himself, and among those people, he is calling them to love, a purity of love for him, worship of him, and to live for him, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So Habakkuk comes to God in complaint. Why on earth, then, do you allow evil? And the title of our sermon is the same, and it's kind of a setup, because there's, real, there's really not an answer in Habakkuk for this just yet. Why? That is the fundamental question. If you're a human being, and, and if you want to, to wrestle with a question, that is the question, okay? Why? Why is there evil in the world? Why do children suffer? Why is Phoenix Children's Hospital filled with young children? Why is there abuse? Why is there poverty? Why is there injustice? And he's asking that specifically. He's saying, God, why? And, and the thing is, he's not pointing the finger at other people. He's pointing it at his own nation and saying, why do you allow such corruption in Israel, not only Israel, but in Judah, the southern tribes? He says this in verses two through three. So he's coming to God in a complaint. Maybe you've been doing the same. God, why? why? Why is this happening in our nation? Here are the things he complains about. Injustice. Not from without, from within. I'm going to explain what was going on there in just a minute. Wrongful suffering, destruction, violence. I cry out violence all day, and, and, and you seem to do nothing. Look at that violence. Why do you cause me to see all this violence, he says. And the Lord seems silent. Strife, he says. Conflict. And then he, he gets even more cranked up. He says this, your law is paralyzed. No one, it would seem among my people, is living for your law. 
The church is corrupt, he's saying. Not only the king is corrupt, but your priest, no one's obeying your law. Justice never prevails. The wicked people have hemmed in the righteous. They've got us fenced in. Justice is a perversion, he says. And he's frustrated because God does not seem to be answering. Now, let me step back. That's what's going on right now with with our boy Habakkuk. He's going to God. He's angry. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been saying the same thing. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is the election we get. Justice is going to be this perverted. We either have this person or this person. I know there's other candidates. I think we're down to two, probably one of those two. And so, right, and some of you are going to God and complain. Or maybe you're saying, I can live with this person, but not this person. Complain. Now, let's back up. Let's talk about the larger context of where, how Habakkuk and Israel got there. We're going to start with the first man, Abraham. Okay, it's not going to take that long, but <laughs> let's go back to Genesis 1.1. Okay, no. Abraham is promised to be the father of a great nation and is promised a land for his people. With promises like that, wouldn't you expect it to go smooth? Abraham, you don't have a kid. You don't have a people. I want you to leave your family. We just read about this, Genesis 12. Leave. And you would expect, like, with promises like that, the God, the living God of the created all things out of nothing, he comes and says, guess what I'm going to do for you? And you'd say, ooh, that sounds good, and I bet it's going to happen quick. Well, it takes thousands of years. Here's what happens. Abraham's family ends up enslaved in Egypt because of his own sons for a long time. But then God sends Moses, you know, to save his people. But then when they get out of slavery, what happens? They wander in the desert for 40 years. And then waiting for the generation that didn't believe God like to die off so that the next generation can go into the land. So the next generation does go into the land, but it's filled with violence and bloodshed. It's horrible. And then they cry out, give us a king. They look around at all the other nations and they say, we want a king and I want you to see that uh, almost always, God's people have had tension with government. Either their tension was with the Lord because it wasn't enough, and they're saying, we want a king, and the Lord's saying, you don't want a king. If you, you know, I, I am your king. As soon as you get a king, you're going to get trouble. But instead, they beg him, they beg him, they beg him, and the Lord gives them a king. Who is it? Saul. He's a horrible king. It's almost like the Lord is saying, I told you so. <laughs> you, know? you want a king? All right, here you go. Saul's selfish, he's reckless, he's a bad leader. David is the second king of Israel. He's deeply flawed. You know this if you've read the story. He, he makes some of the, the people we're looking at today, it's, it's as bad or worse. I mean, can you imagine what CNN would say about David? We could go on. <laughs> he's the second king of Israel. He's deeply flawed, but unlike some of our public folks, he is deeply repentant too. He owns his sin. And the Bible says that he's a man after God's own heart. And that gives us hope. Does that not give you hope that if a man like David, deeply, deeply flawed, deeply sinful, and yet humbled by his sin, he says, my bones cried out and were broken within me until I repented, right? If that's true of him, there's hope for you and me. He's a man after God's own heart, David. So God makes a covenant promise to David that through this kingdom that I'm establishing with you, I will, like Abraham, bless the whole world, ultimately pointing us to Jesus. Now, the thing about David is this. He wanted to build God's temple so badly, didn't he? I want to bless you. I want to build you a house. And God said, I'm going to let you gather the stuff, but you don't get to build it. Not, not with all the stuff in your life. You're not going to build it. But 
your, your boy Solomon, he's going to. Solomon is considered the wisest man in the world at one point in his life, and, and he's given wisdom, and he gets to build the temple, the house where the people get to worship and sacrifice, no longer living in tents, but in Israel, in Jerusalem, a house. But listen, Solomon grows into great folly and sin later in his life. You just can't believe that this man who was so wise becomes that decadent, but he does. Tension. God's people have always had tension with their rulers. Fallenness, brokenness, the humanity of them. And then soon after Solomon dies, Israel begins to fragment from the inside and fights, ultimately leading to a civil war where they break off into the north and the south, interestingly. And the northern tribes quickly fall into sin and disarray and rebellion against God. But the southern tribes kind of hold on for a bit and have some faithful kings, king after king in both this divided kingdom. Now, the northern tribes are captured by the Babylonians, led off into exile. Judah does better for a while under the likes of a guy like Josiah and so forth, but it gets much worse. Now, this is where we find ourselves in Habakkuk, okay? He is a contemporary with the prophet Jeremiah. He, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, they are prophesying to the people, you're corrupt. Here's what had happened. There was a king named Amnon, Ammon. He died, and his son, Josiah, takes over. Ammon was bad, really bad, idolatrous. Uh, there are ten commandments. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not. Second one, don't make any idols. <laughs> well, Israel at this time is setting up idols. It's like an idol factory. They're just producing false gods left and right. They're, they're setting up houses of worship for false idols. And this is what's going on. Ammon's doing this. Josiah takes over. At the age of eight, he becomes the king of Judah. Can you imagine? Would you give, I don't know. I don't know. There's some eight-year-olds I might vote for this time. I'm going to write them in. But like, we got an eight-year-old who's now on the throne. And when he's about 16, the Lord does a, a huge work in his life. And he actually begins to lead faithfully. Uh, Josiah begins to work with the, with, uh, with, with the priest to restore the temple. And as they get in there, they find a scroll. They'd been without the Bible. But they find scripture in the temple. And they unroll it and they begin to read it. And he and the priest, guess what they do? They begin to weep. They begin to weep over what they're reading in Deuteronomy and the Pentateuch. And they can't believe what they found. And they can't believe the decadence they've fallen into in the sin. And they, they have a revival they weep and, and they call the nation together to weep and mourn over what, what has happened in their midst. And then it just seems like things are going great. King, King Josiah is leading them through, uh, through a, a great time of, of really uh, a revolution of the Holy Spirit, a revival. Now, there are three main powers in the land at the time. Judah is not one of them. I mean, Judah's smaller probably than, than Tucson. I mean, it's, it's, this is not a, a huge place to be battling from. Now, one of the main powers is Assyria, and, the, and they've been at the top, but they're on decline. And another one is the Babylonians and the Chaldeans, and they're brutal, and they're on the rise. Israel, you know, Judah, they're, they're very, very weak. I want you to think, when you think of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, I want you to think like North Korea level bad. I want you to think like ISIS level intensity and badness. And they're ruthless, they're aggressive, and they're violent. So Necho II, Pharaoh of Egypt, sends a letter to Josiah saying, I want to march my armies through your land in order to attack the Assyrians and so forth. But uh, 
Josiah says, no, uh, that ain't happening. But Necho too does it anyway, and he starts to bring in his army. So Josiah dresses up, okay, like, like uh, a soldier, enters battle. I mean, think how brave this is with his soldiers, but then he's killed in battle. And what happens then is Josiah's son, uh, Jehoiakim, becomes king ultimately after Josiah, and he's horrible. So we've had revival, we've had repentance, we've discovered God's word in the temple. The prophet uh, you know, Habakkuk and Jeremiah are praising God that finally there's restoration and there's, there's your word again and your people are repenting and, and coming to you again. But then Jehoiakim is back in power just like his grandpa and leading them right back to idolatry. They are literally setting up church services for idols, false gods, and, and they are falling into all kinds of injustice, injustice against the poor, injustice against the people. And this is where we find Habakkuk. So frustrated. We just had revival. And now this. And it reminds me, honestly, of of how many of you who follow Jesus in America are feeling right now, in some ways. And it's not like we just had some great some great leader, but as, as we look at our history over the 200 years, many of us feel like there have been times where God's word has been powerful, where justice has been happening, where, where the Lord seems to be honored, where a people are humbled before their God and so forth. But now look at this, and this is how many of you feel. It felt like at one time for some of you, like Christendom, where like, you know, government and, and, and God's people were overlapping, and then now we've got this, and you're, 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 Tempted to be angry and fearful, like Habakkuk. And I appreciate that Habakkuk shows us that there's a way to complain even to God and be without sin. But then let's, let's look what happens. Habakkuk, confused, angry, disheartened, cries out to God, you've got to be kidding me. Look at this. Look at all. Why do you show me all this evil? And then how does God respond? With, summarized, wonder and be astounded. Wonder and be astounded. Look among the nations, he says. So complaint, complaint, complaint. God finally answers the first complaint, and here it is. Habakkuk, I want you to look at the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if I told you. Well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, this sounds terrific. You're going to do work in my day that if I look, I will wonder and be astounded. This is absolutely incredible. And what's funny about that verse, uh, you have read that verse before, no likely, uh, most likely. And usually plucked out of context and placed somewhere else, like on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt. One of my favorite pastors in Dallas, a guy named Matt Chandler, tells the story of how he spoke at a youth retreat in Texas. And the, the, the theme for that week was, look around and see, be wonder and astounded, for I'm doing a work in your day. And then he's laughing the whole week because he's like, if they knew the context of this passage, you would not put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Because the main message is this, wonder and be astounded because ISIS is marching towards you and going to kill all of you. (laughs) That's literally what's happening in their context. The Chaldeans. Yes, I hear you, Jeremiah. I hear you, Habakkuk. And I've got an answer. I'm tired of your complaining. I'm finally going to answer you. Guess what? Everyone you know is going to die. And I'm going to wipe out and destroy your people. But there will be a remnant. I've heard your cry. Now, how do you think we'll get... That's coming next. What do you think Habakkuk says to that? Oh, <laughs> can we go back to point one? <laughs> like, uh, maybe, 
maybe it's not that bad. Like, uh, well, that's worse. Are you kidding me? They're even worse. That's his response. We'll get to that later. Now, let's go, let's go back to our, our main point today, overarching all this. It's this. God's first priority is not our peace, our prosperity, and our political power. That wasn't true for Israel, who was literally established by God as a theistic nation, (laughs) where God says, you are my people. This is your land. I'll be your king. No, we we want a king. We want a president. No, you want me only as your king. No, no, we want a king. We want a king. Okay, here's your lousy king. When God established a nation, right, even that very nation that he, we know he established, America's been blessed by God and is, you know, and has been, is God bless America. That's all very true, but it was not established the same way Israel was established. I think we all agree on that. And even them, God does not promise their peace, their prosperity, or their political power because his main priority is what? It is the purity of of their love towards him and their neighbor. We don't like that. This is not what we want, but you need to see this is what God is committed to for any time, for any nation, for any people. If my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves and pray, then I will act on their behalf. Bring grace. What I love about Habakkuk is this, you guys. He, he gets to the place where he gets his head straight. It takes a while. We see it in chapter 2. He says, the righteous will live by their faith. And then at the end, he breaks out in song because he's a musician in the temple and a prophet. He's an artist. <laughs> and he says this in verses 17 through 19 in chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, the fig, you know, that's, that's what you want in the ancient Near East. You don't have, you don't have donut bakeries. You know, figs are your desserts, the delight. Your, you know, uh, throw a great meal. Fig, fig is like dessert. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet what? I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. He gets there at the end. Thank goodness. He's angry. He's bitter. But this this is where we need to get, friends. (laughs) We've only got 20-something days left before this election, and the question is this. How are we going to live for the next 20-something days. And what I want you to see as we close, just to bring some, some application, is this. When you rest in the reality that God is God and God is good, that should change us. When you rest in the reality that God is God, meaning he's the sovereign king, and God is good, that should change our life in such a way that you stop the fear and you can live by faith. 
If you really rest in the fact that God is good and God is God, he's sovereign and he's good, then you can stop the fear and live by faith because the righteous man, he says in chapter two, will live by his. And here's the reality. We all live by faith. I'm driving down the street yesterday and I see uh, in Tempe, one of those uh, evolving fish, you know, it's like, it's, they're making fun of, Jesus, you know, Christians that put the, the, the Jesus fish on their car, and it says skeptic, and then it had like, you know, we've all seen it, it's the evolving fish, and I kind of chuckled to myself, like, that's clever, but I also thought, this person thinks he has no faith, he's skeptical, he gets to stand apart from faith, he doesn't have faith, doesn't he have faith? Isn't his skepticism, isn't his belief in, in natural evolution, isn't that faith? That, that is faith. And that faith that he has in that object of natural evolution and there's nothing but, you know, uh, the material world and it's all just by chance, that is a faith, it's a worldview, and it leads to a particular set of ideas and conclusions and emotional responses. The question is this then, what is your faith actually in? Because if you believe that God is God and God is good then the righteous will live in faith in that, and that can stop the fear. When something we hold dear is threatened, or moved, or, 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 or taken away, we have an emotional response, and it's fear and anger, usually. And there's all, this life, it's not like this life doesn't matter. It matters a great deal. And our nation matters. And politics actually matter. This earth matters. This world matters. These people that we're surrounded by, our neighbors, we're called to love them and care for them. They matter. Public policy matters. And so, so the responses shouldn't be like, ah, none of this really matters anyway. It's all going to burn. No, it matters, but in the midst of these mattering things of all these important issues of our day, what and who will be our God? Who will be your king? And, and the degree to which fear and anger are bubbling up will show you because when you really are trusting in the king of kings who's good and he's God, I don't usually live in fear like that. Do you? Have you noticed that? But when I'm putting my hope and my trust and my faith in someone or something that is not God and it starts to feel threatened, it's amazing because I never worry about God getting threatened. I don't. You can threaten him all you want. Like I don't fear for him. I don't worry about him. He's got it. So the question, are, are you believing that God's got this election or not? Some of us are believing the world is falling apart. I've been reading a lot of stuff. <laughs> I've been, I, I repent, okay, I'm, I'm repenting to you right now. So I, I, I like Twitter, and it's my drug of choice. So I, I was a poli-sci major, I was a history minor, I love this stuff. It matters to me. I actually care very deeply about election policy. And so I often, lately, this is not normal, but for me lately, I've been going to bed with Twitter, and, and not like prayers, but like politics, okay? And I've been getting up with Twitter. Not to read my prayers, because there's plenty of good stuff like prayers and good articles and Bible study on Twitter, but I'm reading about, I'm reading about politics. And from both extremes in the political sphere, I'm hearing the world is falling apart, <laughs> Well, if, if that's what I'm feeding my heart on day and night, what's going to happen? Fear, anxiety. Christian, we live in this kingdom. 
a kingdom in this earth, this world, this is where you live. And it does matter. You're here to serve. You're here to love. You're here to pray. You're here to run for office. Would you please do so? You're here to vote. You're here to make a difference. You're here to love your neighbors yourself. And frankly, the thing is, it's, it's to, to serve God and his justice. But you've also got to realize simultaneously, and so do I, that this is not our ultimate kingdom. That this is a kingdom that God cares deeply about and we're called to serve, love, and, and, and to show and demonstrate the love of Christ in the midst of, right? But also simultaneously to say to myself and believe and have faith because the righteous man will live by his faith that this is not my ultimate kingdom and this is not my ultimate king. Amen? And when we're living in fear and anger and frustration, all, all that that's serving and showing is that our trust and our actual faith, there's what we say we believe, but our actual faith in that moment is more towards this kingdom instead of the ultimate one. We're here to serve, love, but listen, thank God we have an ultimate king and we have an ultimate kingdom of which we are citizens. It's normal to live with some anxiety in an election, but our fears, friends, it exposes what we ultimately hope in. Who is your king? God will still be God, and God will still be good after this election. All right, I'm going to say it again, and I want a better response than that, all right? Look, I, I crafted this phrase, man. Like, this is. God will still be God, and God will still be good after this election. Is that true? Thank you. Thank you. The Lord's got this. This is hard to believe because it matters. But God's got this. And you're saying, but I don't like the answer. Well, check out Habakkuk. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like, you know, I don't like him. God's got this. I don't like her. God's got this. I don't like either of them. God's got this. God's got it. So stop living by fear and live by faith. One other application. Stop the fighting and live by grace. This election, more than any other, I'm seeing is dividing the body of Christ. And that we're, we're fighting within ourselves. Like, as soon as I've, I have treaded out there on social media and posted some stuff, sometimes wisely, sometimes not. And what's been amazing to me is, like, is that you just throw it out there like, I, th I think this is a good idea. And then it's like, that's the stupidest idea I've ever seen. Clearly, any thinking Christian would do this. You know, it's like, I thought that was just a decent idea. Just trying to, you know, get a little traction here. Like, uh, maybe think, get you to think. I know a lot of Christians who are voting for one of the two candidates, believing they're voting for the lesser of two corrupt candidates. And I mean a lot on both, both sides. I will be voting this, I will be voting for her because I think she is the lesser of two evils and I, and I really think it's better. And I have, I have other friends that feel the opposite. I have a few that are just hardcore, like this is my favorite candidate of all time in both directions. Very few, thank God. <laughs> I also know a lot of people who are so troubled by both candidates that they're gonna be casting a write-in vote. They're not going to vote for either. And I have to say, like, I've seen 
people that I really believe trust Jesus are reading the same scriptures I'm reading and believing same similar things that I'm believing and are coming out in different conclusions. And we've got to grant some grace to one another in this church, online, but because we're one body and we serve the same king. And can we admit that this election more than others is bringing out the crazy in all of us? And so can we grant a little grace, a little more grace to one another online and in our conversation and in our tones? And even though I'm planning the sermon, I got into a conversation last night that I had to quickly repent of. Like, this is a hard one. Because when we understand grace and as the fundamental bedrock theology of the Christian faith is that none of us deserve None of us deserve to be members of God's kingdom, that each one of us are, are foreigners into God's kingdom, that get in not because we deserve it, not because we are righteous, but because in spite of our unrighteousness, the Son, the true King, he's, He has made us righteous. And check this out. He elected us into our kingdom. That's for another day. Do we really want to get into some controversy? But we don't vote to get into God's kingdom. He votes for us. He elects us. He calls us by his grace. It's all grace. You're a citizen of God's kingdom by his grace and his sheer mercy. And so in light of that, in light of that, these things matter. They matter deeply. And like I've mentioned, I really care. (laughs) I have strong opinions about this stuff, stronger than I've had in years. But at the end of the day, I can't let this divide my relationship with my Lord, a in my relationship with you, my brothers and sisters. The truth is, some of you get really mad at me if we had a, a private, personal conversation. Some of you get very, very angry with me, and, I'm, and I would probably do the same with you, but at the end of the day, we're serving the same Lord. We need to live by faith more than fear. We need to live by grace more than anger. Amen? Amen. There's much more we're going to be talking about as we look at this great series. I'm going to close by reading from 1 Timothy, and then we're going to go into a time of the Lord's Supper. 1 Timothy 6 says this. Please Quiet your heart and listen to this. But as you, O man of God, and I will say, O woman of God as well, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And he's charging his young man in his life, this young man that he has mentored, discipled, loved, this young pastor, Timothy. He's charging him. And he says this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in the testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is what I'm driving towards. I want you to hear this. Jesus He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Yes. (laughs) We have a good king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray.